warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara Jessica will make you. We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey there, spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Jessica, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite gal pal, Tara. Hey, spooksters. Today, we are going to be talking about a really interesting case, but before we do that, we're going to do our our little business we handle up front. Mm -hmm. If you want to check out our social medias, you can do so by heading over to any of the socials, though, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. That's the other one. The handle is at three spooked girls. If you want to be part of our kind of like ongoing community that we have, we have a Facebook group. It is three spooked girls official. It's a fantastic group. We do book of the month club. There's a bunch of things that happen in there. Mm -hmm. that's where we did our secret satan unfortunately at this point it has closed and people are sending things out Mm -hmm. but you can hang out with us and interact with other spooksters in the community it's really i i really enjoy like seeing the interactions in there it is and so if that's something you're wanting to be a part of head over there that's kind of where we congregate Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you you will and then if you want to help support the show, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls for little as a dollar a month. You get a bonus episode. Theirs was Friday. It was pretty fun, if I say so myself. Mm-hmm. So you definitely want to check it out if and head over there. If you like our patron selects where you've heard us dedicate them to someone, that would be our $10 and up tier. And you can definitely check out the different ones of those. We do have a Spookster shop. It is a Facebook group. It's in the link tree. You can get a fabulous Tara rating from Tara. Mm-hmm. And then she has a bunch of other goodies on there as well. It's definitely something you should check out. And with that... I'm going to hand it over to Tara, who's going to tell us about the death of a cheerleader. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So this one has been requested quite a bit. And so here we are. It was it was time. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we like a we like a we like an excuse to get to watch a 90s made for TV movie as well, because obviously that wasn't part of our research. But we were like, we have to watch this, too, because hello. So spelling. Come on. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. Okay. Do you remember her TV show she had? No, I went to her reality. No, oh. her reality show. Yes, I forgot that she had a Oh my god. Yeah, I used to watch that religiously. Fun fucking fact. I remember it 
I remember her kids just seemed always really unhappy with everything that her and her husband were doing. Probably. Poor kids. All right. Enough of that. Okay. So we are talking about the murder of Kirsten Costas. So Kirsten Marina Costas was born on July 23rd, 1968 to Arthur and Barry Costas in Oakland, California. She also had a brother named Peter, and the family was extremely well off. Arthur, or I believe he went by Art, he was a corporate exec, and his wife was a stay-at-home mom, and the Costas family lived in Orinda, California. Now, for those unfamiliar, this is a suburb close to like San Francisco, Oakland, UC Berkeley, that kind of area. A lot of very well-off business and corporate people live there because obviously it's it's obviously still expensive, but it's cheaper than living in San Francisco. So, you know, <laughs> facts. Makes sense. <laughs> and major- like I said, a more- majority of these families were very well off. And even the ones that were like, I've been saying this with air quotes, not so well off, were still pretty fucking comfy. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's the bougie part of the East Bay mm-hmm. or one of the bougie parts of the East Bay. It's like one of those places that you move from San Francisco to there because one, great schools, but also like for what you would buy in San Francisco, you could buy like a whole freaking like giant house with a yard in Orinda. Right. And suburby with your kids and all Mm -hmm. that. Yep. And fun facts, Orinda was ranked the number two friendliest city by Forbes. And so, of course, that, you know, that means the crime rate was extremely low. And the high school in town, Miramonte High School, was ranked number one in the state for public high schools. So pretty fucking cool. I mean, with that tax base, and it's basically a private school. <laughs> right? I know. It was like, I was reading about it, and it was like, the teacher's starting salary is $75,000. So I was like... That's not where anyone else in the state. No. Other teachers right now are like, what the fuck? They get paid? <laughs> They're like, I'm moving. <laughs> Facts. Oh, God. So and they they had tons of students who went on to be extremely successful academically and sports wise. Multiple articles mentioned multiple NFL players, Olympic gymnasts, that kind of thing. And this was the high school that Kirsten attended. Kirsten was described by her friends as witty, outgoing, confident, sarcastic, stylish, and beautiful. The easiest way to describe her is she was an it girl. She was petite. She had dark curly hair that was cut kind of short to her shoulders, a little bit like around there. And she had olive skin. She was very beautiful. She was a very beautiful girl. And she did a lot of extracurricular activities, as you would expect. She participated in cheerleading varsity swim team, the soccer team. She worked, she was like a student aide. She worked in the the office. She was a member of this group called Bobolinks, which basically was described as like a volunteer type of organization, but basically was like a high school sorority. And it made me think of Gilmore Girls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the puffs? That's exactly what I thought of. That's what I thought of. I was like, oh my God, they, that's like, that's what that is. And, you know, Kirsten always had the new and trendy clothes, all of the expensive things, you know, like typical rich kid things, like had all the stuffs. Lots of boys liked her, but she was said to not date very much. And, you know, all the girls wanted to be her, basically, is what some stuff said. And our case takes place in 1984. This would be her sophomore year. 
Now, we do have another person I have to introduce you guys to. Very important to the case and why this is a case. This would be Bernadette Prodi. And like I said earlier, all of the families in this area are well off. Bernadette's family was no exception, except they weren't quite as rich as like the cool kids. Like they were fine and obviously Mm -hmm. like lived in the area. But this family was made up of six kids. They had six kids, Bernadette being the youngest. So there's that two versus six. That's a that's a hefty difference. Her dad was a retired public works officer, but he was you know, there was enough income and stuff that her mom stayed home as a stay at home mom as well. And something that's important to know is, too, is they were very devout Catholics. They were very, very religious mm-hmm. with their families. But of course, because, you know, teenagers are assholes, she was unfortunately classified as a, you know, quote, wannabe. One of those kids that wasn't quite with the cool kids type of situation. With that, though, Bernadette did participate in a lot of stuff as well. She was on the swim team. She was in Bobolinks, and she also worked in the student office. And she worked, you know, in the student office with Kirsten. So everybody obviously knew who Kirsten was, but she was like around her quite a bit because of that and swim team and Bobolinks and all that stuff. And Bernadette had also tried out for cheerleading and applied to be on the the yearbook staff, but she was not chosen for either of those things. And cheerleading was like the biggest letdown for her because this was, this was like, this was like the thing. And this is way over the top the thing because the first one they were like, yeah, this was the thing. I was like, oh, okay. Like a lot of schools got it. No, these fuckers went like above and beyond. So before tryouts, These candidates had to submit an essay about why they would be an asset to the squad. And Mm. then they had to get their parents' consent that if they were chosen for the squad, that their parents would be financially responsible for the uniforms, which I was like, okay, normal, kind of. And also, they had to pay for the cheers for cheer camp, and that was mandatory. So this total came to about $500 in 1980s money. So that's that. That's a good chunk of change for high school cheerleading, I think. I don't know what that converts to today, but. And then when they decide to select. It's about $1,500 today, by the way. Oh, okay. $1,500. I guess for like people that are like super well off like that, they're just kind of like, whatever. That'd be like, what? Us paying like a couple hundred bucks. Right. And even then, like when you think about it, like for like a camp and a uniform. It still isn't like that much. That's true, but still. Even $1,500, like that's what I would expect people to have to pay. Now, I'd hope the school, like if it's not like Orenda where there's people have tons of money that they would be like, oh, you could make payments or some shit. Right, exactly. Or they have a car wash. So when they, I keep wanting to say this whole time when I'm writing my notes and when I wrote my write-up, I kept wanting to say casting. When they were casting the new squad members, that's not the fucking thing to say. Anyways, when they were announcing the candidates after the tryouts, they made it a whole fucking thing. They had an assembly. They made a huge ordeal about this. They had little like an envelope to announce the names. And then they'd call these people, these girls up to stage and then they'd give them flowers like they won Miss America or something. That's really weird. Like, I didn't really like that part. No. Like, what the fuck? Like, that was legit. Now, during all of this, and some argue 
is why Bernadette tried out for cheerleading was because of Kirsten. She wanted to be friends with her so, so badly because in her eyes, Kirsten was everything she wanted. The popularity, the boys, the clothes, everything. And like I mentioned, of course, you know, they essentially like rubbed elbows basically because they were in similar circles, you know, with the different extracurriculars, the office thing. There was a lot of times when they were working the office, they were together and Kirsten would be like, oh, I need you to do this favor for my friend. They need an excuse absence like type of thing, you know, Mm. and because Bernadette wanted to be accepted so badly, she she did it, which whatever. But Kirsten was not interested in being friends with her. She actually was kind of a mean girl to her sometimes. And something I liked that was like said immediately right here during this part of the story in a video I watched. Just because somebody acts like a mean girl or does something not so great, they still don't deserve to be murdered. True. There is no need to victim blame. I'm sorry. No. But anyways, so there was this like school trip and Kirsten was kind of not nice to her. Because she had secondhand clothes. She had secondhand gear. She didn't have, you know, the top of the line, whatever the fuck skiing stuff is. I don't know because I don't do that. But like Bernadette had saved up and paid for all of this by herself for the trip and her gear and whatever else she took from babysitting, you know. And there was like comments of her bringing up like saying about the thrift shop and blah, blah, blah. Like it was this whole bad thing. Now, Bernadette was said to have extremely low self-esteem, but this didn't discourage her at all when this happened. It actually fueled her to want to be friends with her more. So much so, she became obsessed with wanting to feel accepted, wanting to be popular, wanting to be friends with Kirsten, beyond tunnel vision focus. And, you know, the cheerleading and the yearbook denials did mess with her. I mean, as it would anybody. And Mm. with her, though, because of like how obsessed she was about all of this, you know, she felt like because she was rejected that everybody was going to reject her. She thought just very like end of the world type of thing with that. But she thought if she got this friendship with Kirsten, things would turn around for her. So flash forward to that summer after their sophomore year to June 22nd, 1984. Now, this day, Bernadette goes to a payphone and she dials Kirsten's home number. She timed this call with the intention because she or with intention because she knew Kirsten was at cheer camp. And if she made this call when Kirsten was home and tried to talk to her, she had a greater 100 percent almost chance that she was going to be blown off. So she got crafty and talked to Kirsten's mom course, that's who answers the phone. And Bernadette tells her that there's a bobbling dinner for new members the next night and that she was going to pick Kirsten up to take her to this dinner at 830. And she said, it's a surprise, though. So, like, don't tell her what it is. Just, you know, like, don't tell her I'm coming. Blah, blah, blah. Just, you know, make sure she gets dolled up nice for dinner. Blah, blah, blah. And Kirsten's mom's like, OK, cool. So I'll do that not a problem. And they get off the phone. They get off the phone without Kirsten's mom even knowing she was talking to Bernadette. She didn't know. She just knew it was some girl from Bobolinks. That's it. But I mean, why are you going to be like sketched out about that? You know what I mean? Right. Especially because like this is like one of those kind of like groups where they do things like abduct you in the middle of the night and mm-hmm. do those kind of 
fun rituals. Especially if the mom, I mean, this was the 80s. They in, yeah. in that area, it was very trustworthy. So she's like, oh, something fun's happening for my daughter. Of course, I'm going to let her go and do it. Exactly. Now, on Bernadette's end, she told her parents she had a babysitting gig that night, which, like I said, she babysat all the time. So her dad took her over to the house she said she was babysitting at. And when they got there, she convinced her dad to leave the car with her because, one, she said it would make her feel safer given, like, to give that appearance that there was an adult home because there's a car in the driveway. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, I was like, I I get that. And then, two... You know, she could then drive herself home once the parents got back and it was like literally around the corner. And being from a small town, it's like, whatever. You know what I mean? And it's like, mm-hmm. it's also the 80s. If anyone's like in a city city, they're probably like, what? <laughs> no, that's like a normal thing. <laughs> I wasn't surprised her dad's like, sure, cool. So, you know, her her dad parks it, gives her the keys to his Ford Pinto and he goes home. And once the coast is clear, she gets into the car and she drives over to Kirsten's house. And the thing with this, too, which I think is like so weird, people for some reason like to nitpick what Bernadette was wearing because she was wearing like casual clothes. But it's like, okay, she was lying to her parents saying she was going babysitting. If she got all like super dolled up when she normally doesn't to babysit, they're going to fucking know something's up. Right. Just saying. It'd be suspicious. Exactly. So. Kirsten's family wasn't home when she was getting ready to go to this surprise outing. They were at, I I think it was a sports banquet or some kind of dinner thing for Pete. And Kirsten's mom actually called before Kirsten got picked up, you know, to check in with her. And she was like, you know, have fun. I'll see you later when you get home. And they said, I love you. And they hung up. And this was the last time they would ever talk. Now, Bernadette rolls up and honks the horn. And when Kirsten gets to the car and sees who it is, she's kind of like, oh, it's you. She's, she's disappointed. Like, she's disappointed because she thought it was going to be one of her gal pals. But Bernadette convinces her that, you know, like, hey, come on, just get in. Let's go. We're really not going to a bobblings thing. Like, I lied about that to tell your mom to cover for you. We're going to go to a party. And it was like a party everybody had been talking about. So Kirsten's like, okay, cool. Let's fucking go. And when she gets in, she notices there's a kitchen butcher knife in the car. But Bernadette explains this away and is like, oh, it's one of my sisters. She uses it for like fruits and veggies when she wants a snack in the car type of thing. She had a sister who was like a super health nut. So Kirsten was just like, okay, whatever. I'm sure it was probably like a jokey type of comment at first. Nothing crazy because it's not like it was like fucking covered in blood or anything scary. It was just kind of like chilling. Now, that plus the rest of this is pretty much according to Bernadette. Just FYI. So, yeah. So Bernadette says that they ended up pulling over to an empty church parking lot. And they were there for about 40 minutes because Kirsten wanted to smoke some weed that she had brought before they went to the party. And that Kirsten tried to convince her to smoke with her, but she declined. And later, people like kids, students were like, there's no way that she would have declined that if that happened because she wanted to be liked by Kirsten so fucking badly. She wanted to be accepted so badly. She would have done anything. So whatever. But 
they start talking, you know, she says that they argue about the weed and then they start talking and arguing and then it comes out that technically Bernadette wasn't invited to this party, that she had just heard it essentially from a friend of a friend type of thing. So Kirsten's like, so you're not even actually invited and we're just going to show up. She's like, no, fuck that noise. I don't want to do that. Like, what the fuck? And so they start going back and forth and then Bernadette gets super upset and she's just she says to Kirsten, she says that she's going to spoil everything. And Kirsten says there was nothing. There was never anything to spoil because we weren't invited. So whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Bernadette starts crying and being like, why are you so mean? Wah, 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 all that stuff. And she's like, why won't you be my friend? Like, just like loses it. And Kirsten, apparently, in response, rolled her eyes. And Bernadette was like carrying on about how much she admired her and wanted to be like her and all of this stuff. And she says like Kirsten said that this was pathetic and said stuff like that and then after that gets out of the car because she's like okay fuck this shit well luckily there was a family friend that lived next to this church it was a couple named alexander and mary jane arnold these were friends of kirsten's parents which again small town small area not surprised so she goes up to the door and she knocks they open the door and she has to use the phone and she says hey, can I use your phone to call my parents? Because my friend got weird and I want to go home and I don't want to go home with her. So they're like, yeah, of course, come in because they know her. So they come in and when she's coming in, they see Bernadette, but she's like kind of back. She's like, she's brought the car over, whatever, but she's like at the road because she obviously like can hear all of this. So she's like, I'm not gonna be up in Mm -hmm. there, apparently. So she comes in, she tries to call her parents, but her parents aren't home yet from the thing with her brother. So Alexander is like, hey, like, I can take you home. It's no problem. You know, if you really don't want to go home with your friend. And she's like, yes, please. I do not want to ride with her. So they get in the car and, you know, they're driving home. And Alexander later says, you know, she she really wasn't in distress or anything. She was like talking about school, cheerleading, all of that stuff. And all she really would say is like, my friend got weird and I just it's whatever. I just want to fucking go home anyways. So, you know, he said like he didn't think too much of it, didn't think it was anything serious. But then when they're driving, he notices that that Pinto is following them. And he's like, are you sure there's not something going on with this friend? Like, is everything okay?" And she just insisted everything was fine. So he's like, all right, well, I'm going to they get to the house. He's like, I'm going to I'm going to sit here until I see you go in, you know, like a responsible adult, making sure she gets in safe. Mm -hmm. So she goes to the to her house and she realizes her parents are aren't there. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to go to my next door neighbor's house or whatever. He's sitting there and he like can see this or whatever but Bernadette pulls up and she parks and she grabs that knife that was in the vehicle and charges up to Kristen or Kirsten on the neighbor's lawn and this obviously like you see someone coming charging at you with a fucking knife Kirsten like backed up and yelled at her to go away and Bernadette was like nope and she started attacking her with the knife She stabbed her multiple times 
The knife had an 18-inch blade, and she stabbed Kirsten twice in the stomach, two times in the back once she fell to the ground, and she also had defensive wounds on her because she was hit in her, like, hand and forearm as well. And also, we come to find out that there was a major artery severed in her heart. So they said out of like her major wounds, there besides that one, there was three that would have been fatal either way. Now, Alexander, Mr. Arnold, you know, he heard and saw all of this shit. He saw the attack or kind of saw like heard them. He thought they were fist fighting because I think there was like some trees or something kind of blocking his view a little bit. And he saw Kirsten fall to the ground and he saw Bernadette bolt. So he was like, oh, hell no. I'm going to go get this little fucker. And so he starts following her. because She's gotten in the car and she took off. But then while he's doing this, he's like, oh, shit, what am I doing? Like, I need to go make sure she's okay because she might be hurt. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she was. So even with all of these injuries, Kirsten gets to her feet and she gets over to the neighbor's house and she's banging on the front door. And this neighbor is, his name was Arthur Hillman. He opened the door and immediately she collapsed. And he's like, holy fucking shit. So he calls for his son, who was a teenager too, and told him to call 911. And he tried to ask her, who did this to you? And he said that the only thing she was, you know, saying that she could get out was that she couldn't breathe. She didn't say a name or anything. Now, mind you, her parents are still not home. But when the ambulance comes, that's when the parents come back. I am like, holy fucking shitballs. Like, I... And the movie illustrates this so well. I'm just like that. I I don't want that nightmare ever in my fucking life. Like, holy right? fuck. Jesus. So Kirsten's taken to the hospital by the ambulance and, you know, police are responding to this. And Alexander gets back and he talks to the officers because, you know, he told them everything I just told you guys. And, you know, he brings up that Kirsten had mentioned this like weird friend. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's like, we saw her at our house. She was chilling on the road. But he had a very, very vague description of her. He said she was a, quote, chunky teenage girl with stringy blonde hair attired in track pants and driving a Ford Pinto. And that was like kind of it. So that's not really going to slim it down at all, you know. And so she would be obviously transported to the hospital and Kirsten would be pronounced dead at 11.02 p.m. Now, meanwhile, Bernadette has went home. And when she went home, she flushed the weed down the toilet. She hid the knife and then went on a walk with her mom and the family dog. That's so weird. Like nothing happened. And it was late. I'm like, who the fuck was on a walk that late? But maybe I'm just an old lady. She later states that she was restless the remainder of the night because she thought that she had just injured Kirsten. She didn't think she murdered her. And she fully expected the police to come knocking on her door because obviously Kirsten would be like, Bernadette fucking stabbed me, you know. But we know that's not what happened. Now, the next day, she gets a call from one of her friends and they tell her that Kirsten was murdered. At this point, Bernadette disposes of the clothes she was wearing that night and she washes the knife, the murder weapon, 
and puts it back in the kitchen. I mean, I mean, I, what else are you going to do about it? I guess whatever. But, you know, still, I'm like, Jesus, fuck. So at this point, they have a funeral for Kirsten, obviously. And uh, fucking Bernadette comes. I'm like, bruh. I mean, I know we've seen that before, but anytime I hear that, I'm just like, Jesus, fuck. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that's like so disturbing. And she was like crying and this whole fucking thing. And there was also said to be hundreds of people there at her funeral. Now, after this, because they have such a vague description of this attacker, investigators start this six-month investigation. So they start questioning students, which, of course, includes Bernadette. There was a point where she took a polygraph test. Some articles said that, obviously, polygraph, whatever, but this is the 80s, so of course they're going to do it. Results came back inconclusive. Some say she had failed. Depends. I mean, same difference. Whatever. You know, we know she's guilty. And then, obviously, she gave this babysitting alibi, but she wasn't fucking babysitting. So there was that. But they did try to focus on this student named Nancy Kane, who Kirsten was said to have picked on. And they and she was like a goth girl. She was like, you know, not the preppy norm that most people were. So they thought, oh. If she was bullied by Kirsten, she decided to snap and kill her. Mm-hmm. That was their thought for the longest time. But no, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't the fucking case. It didn't help that she had like written that she wanted to kill Kirsten. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because she had wrote that. And then there was like all of these rumors. You know, it's the whole fucking thing where it's like it's teenagers. So it's going to make it worse than, you know, what it's supposed to be. Nancy's mom would not permit her to take a lie detector test, and she would end up transferring to a different school the following September. Which I thought was interesting because they were like, Uh oh, then she's guilty because she transferred schools. And I was Mm -hmm. like... Or she just didn't want to get bullied more. Like, the fuck? Like, she was bullied (laughs) before the popular girl got killed. Imagine what it's going to be like afterwards. Exactly. So, once... The focus on Nancy died down. They were like, oh, this had to be like a drifter or some someone not from town. No, none of our kids could have done this. Well, as time goes on, eventually, investigators thankfully decide to contact the BAU. And, you know, we're a huge fucking fan of them because they reach out and they're like, hey, can you do a profile? Because we literally have nothing. We have interviewed hundreds of people. We have looked through countless Pintos, including Bernadette's, which had no evidence. So that's why that was cleared. We're at a dead end. We don't know what the fuck to do, right? So the FBI does make a profile and the police department gets it in October of 1984. Now, this profile stated that Kirsten's killer would be a girl of the same age as the victim. And she probably knew her. And the biggest surprise as far as the police department were concerned was that this killer would not be remorseful. So they had been thinking that, you know, if they questioned the murderer, they would eventually feel guilty and admit it. But the profile is like, nah, fam, not gonna happen. Also during this, Kirsten's parents hired a private investigator to 
look into this as well. And it was actually when he was looking at everything, Bernadette's alibi jumped out at him. He's like, wait a minute, red flag. He made a call to the family that she said she was supposed to be babysitting that for that night. And they were like, no, we didn't have her babysit that night. And so he's like, oh, fuck. So he is the one that followed up on that and told authorities about it. Now, on December 9th, 1984, Bernadette's interviewed again, and they read the profile to her and asked her if this sounded like anybody she knew. And she's like, that sounds like me. Bruh. Mm -hmm. The fuck? You're fucking dumb. Actually, she straight up says, quote, that sounds just like me. And that the public humiliation of people knowing that you know, this person had done this, would be worse than going to prison, end quote. (laughs) Which I'm like, holy fucking shit. But obviously they can't arrest her because it's like, that's just, this is a teenage girl saying, like, you know what I mean? It could have been nothing. Right. It could have just been her fucking saying shit she shouldn't be fucking saying if she was innocent, but she's obviously not. So uh, here we are. (laughs) But detectives were like, it's her. It's her. We got to get her to confess or find something. It's one of the, it's like the Casey Anthony thing. It's like, if you don't have something, what are you going to fucking do? You know? Right. So time goes on. And uh, guilt does settle in eventually to Bernadette. She first sits down and writes a list and just, you know, kind of kind of goes over with herself, reflects on her feelings about all of this. And I wrote it down, and I'm going to read this list to you. Okay, here we go. I have caused a lot of hurt and pain to a lot of people. I don't want to hurt people anymore. I want to go to heaven when I die. I regret what I did. If I kill myself, I will hurt people even more, my family. I think I could kill myself. I would go to hell if I killed myself. I would rather kill myself than go on if people knew. Although it's incredible, my parents are saints and they would forgive me and love me. So that's a lot. This happened like right after the thing because the next day, December 10th, 1984, she has a whole letter for her mom telling her everything that she has done. And when she wrote it, she gave it to her mom and she was like, hey, I need you to read this letter that I wrote you, but please wait 30 minutes after I leave to read it. And so her mom's like, "Okay." And then her mom reads that and is like, holy fucking shit. And she the parents, I I think the dad was with her. I don't remember at this point, but basically like the mom hauls ass to the school and is like, no, give me my kid. And then they go home and apparently awkwardly sit, and then they go to the police station. And now, I am going to hand it over to Jessica. Yeah. (laughs) Like, this case is so hard. Like, at this point in time, she's been interviewed, like, three or four, maybe even five times by the police. Yeah. It's not just been, like, she was seen once, and then they came back. When, like, Nancy Kane kind of was, like, still in the mix they were still interviewing bernadette because bernadette was like mm-hmm. she was like an outlier in their group and i think people yeah. knew that they had had like the interaction on the ski trip and everything like that so basically it was this kind of 
this weird thing. So Kevin kind of hard to find because I wish like she wasn't a minor because then at least we would have been able to like get a lot of the the tapes and stuff. But because Mm -hmm. she was, the case was sealed. So like there's been like there's literally like they're literally 15 years old. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is why like. I mean, it's really hard. She was a young mm-hmm. girl who, you know, just wanted to be accepted, and she wasn't. But that's no reason to yeah. kill people, no. first and foremost. So just so that we're all on the same page, not condemning yeah. that at all. No. But she ends up, like, confessing to the police. And basically, the story that she does tell is that, you know, she just wanted to be Kirsten's friend. Like, she just wanted her. That's what she wanted. For her to, like, accept her and that she was, like, trying to give her a ride home after this whole situation. And then they got into the fight and she grabs the knife and, like, attacks her. It wasn't because the police at this point are like, who the fuck carries a knife in their car? Mm-hmm. A big ass butcher knife at that. It's not like it's a pocket knife. Yeah, like, it's 18 inches. That's pretty fucking ginormous. Yeah. So you're looking kind of at the fact that there's this giant ass knife and the police like didn't really buy the story of like she was cutting up vegetables because I don't know about you, but like I don't keep an 18 inch knife in my car to cut up vegetables. No, I mean, if you're going to be the weirdo that has a knife to cut up vegetables in your in your fucking car, it's going to be like a paring knife. Right. <laughs> and it, it's funny because like we talked about there was like a TV movie and then we were watching and it's it's really funny because Bernadette, who's in the movie, her sister or like the girl's called Angela. Yeah. The sister is played by, she was Jordan on Scrubs. Yeah. And I was watching this and I was like, oh my God, because they they did like a a podcast of Scrubs, like a Scrubs rewatch podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was called Fake Doctors Real Friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was on it and I'm pretty sure she fucking talked about this movie. I have to say, and I mean, y'all can disagree, but this is my opinion. 90s and two early, early 2000 Lifetime movies were fucking, like, on point. True. They were. Now they're trash. Yeah. Right. But, yes. Yeah, because, like, you know, this one, they were accurate as fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Now it's like, let's either exploit families or add in, like, a whole chunk that didn't even fucking happen. You know, it's fine. It's true. I mean, they basically hit, like, when Tara's, like, retelling the story, because I had watched and read some stuff, and then I was watching the movie. Uh-huh. Oh, this is, like, so... It's like with the Betty Broderick point. one. It was, like, super accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot... Okay, so, like, basically, it was, like, the thing. So they made the Betty Broderick movie, like, literally just a year, like, a couple of years after she had committed the murders. I know the Melendez Brothers one. I was literally talking about this with George the other day. It's trash because they made it like in between the two trials. So it's not accurate Mm -hmm. at all. But like, yeah, they make these movies that because they wanted the integrity of it. Yeah. So she's interviewed and like she's basically saying that, okay, I did it. But hear me out. I didn't mean to do it. (laughs) And the police don't really buy it. And so she does go to court. She does go to trial and everything like that. Mm hmm. Which is interesting is, like, she was, she got second degree murder, Mm -hmm. which I think is weird because she totally first degree killed her. A hundred percent. She, like, ran up and murdered her. This wasn't like they were standing in the kitchen and Kirsten was like, I hate you. You're a dumb bitch. And then 
Bernadette picked up a knife and stabbed her. And like it happened once. She stabbed her like five times. You said there were like three fatal blows. So, and then she mm-hmm. fled the scene and act like nothing happened. <laughs> MBD, let's go for a walk. Because the prosecution failed to prove that Bernadette actually like premeditated this shit. She only got the second degree. And yeah. the maximum amount of years for second degree murder was nine years. Bro. So like, even if, okay, like, let's say she serves all nine years. She's 15 when this is happening, right? Because she was sentenced on April 1st, 1985. Which, you know, no April Fool. Probably April Fool's to like, Kirsten's family, like, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. But like, okay, so let's say that she's, her birthday's in September. So now she's probably like, what, 16 when she's been yeah. sentenced. So like, dude, she'll be like her mid 20s. Right. Early 20s. Like, what She'll be tw- like 25. Yeah, that's so young. Mm-hmm. However, that's not what ends up happening. So she's sentenced, Ew. and then she's sent off to California's, youth author- to California's Youth Authority in Ventura, where she actually completes high school. And she completes high school with a 4.0 GPA. So she gets her GED. So she's, she was smart. So she, like, yeah. finishes school and everything. But because she was doing really, really well in school, she actually only served seven years and was paroled. She was paroled on June 10th, 1992. Bruh, I was one years old. (laughs) You were a little thing, too. (laughs) I was definitely six. Yeah. But, like, fuck. So, yeah. So then she, she does what a lot of people do. In her situation, which is changes her name. Mm-hmm. We see that a lot, especially with like these like killer kid cases. Right. Mm-hmm. And she moved out of the state and her name is now Janet. Kind of like Bernadette, but like J-A-N-N-E-T-T-E. So like Jeanette? Yeah, Jeanette. Uh-huh. Tamaka. She apparently has a Facebook and Twitter account. Not that I'm saying anyone should go find her, but she's in her 50s now. Dang. And yeah, so apparently she's married. She has a career. She has children. This is one of those like weird things where you're like, you fucking murdered a person and now you've had a whole life. And I'm sure, like, Kirsten's family, who actually ended up having to, like, leave the area because of this. Mm. They, like, moved in, like, 1986 to Hawaii. But, like we mentioned earlier, they did make a TV movie. Yes. One Miss Tori Spelling plays Stacy Lockwood. I really liked the part where they became, they call them Meadowlarks in the, mm. which I actually like the name better, Meadowlarks. I was like, oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. The weird thing is, like, when they did their initiation, they had to, like, go get, like, mayonnaise slathered on their head and then go kiss men in cars. <laughs> like, on yeah. the cheek, and they were, like, old guys, which I was like, that's fucking weird. Super fucking weird. Yeah. It was cute. And, like, it was pretty on par with, like, the actual case, yeah. like Tara said. Yeah. And they've remade it, like, twice. Yes. There is a newer one. Yeah. It came out like in 2018 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like pretty recent. And it is also called Death of a Cheerleader. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's like one of those, like, this is one of those cases where it's kind of hard to like, it's almost like hard to believe the story that like. Right. 
The thing that breaks my heart is that Bernadette obviously felt like she had no other choice. Like she was so worried. Like she told the police that she was so afraid that Kirsten was going to go to school the next day and tell everyone that she was weird and that she was never going to be able to recover from that. And that's what enraged her. And it kind of makes me, it makes me so sad for her because it's like at the same time, like, sweetie, you were only going to be there for two more years and your life would have been so different. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of heartbreaking. It is. The whole thing. Cause it's like, even though like Bernadette did something really fucked up, she was 15 years old. And like, I think about like my niece is 15 and like Mm -hmm. sometimes like how irrational children are. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just, there's a lot of pressure when you're in high school. And then, you know, on the, on the flip side, it's sad because like, even though, you know, she was kind of the, a little bit of a snotty popular girl but like she did she did a lot of things and she was extremely smart so it's like she had so much potential in her life too so it's just really sad totally totally bernadette should have just like smacked her and went on on her way <laughs> i also wish i think one of the things is, is they kind of allude to bernadette's home life as being like really kind of strict and hard And it didn't really seem like her parents had that super emotional, like, connection. I mean, she was the youngest of six kids. And so... There's a lot. Yeah, when you think of that, it's probably, like, she's not getting the exact attention she needs. She was really, like, in the movie, they kind of show her, like, being really surprised that her mom let her, like, go on the ski trip at all. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think also, like, not having the disposable income, like, the way the other girls did... It's just, is a lot. And I mean, I remember being in high school and wanting to be cool. It's just, it's a very sad case all around. And I feel bad for both of their parents because it's also like Bernadette's parents lost a kid that day too. Yeah. Even though that she's still around, there has to be some sort of huge heartbreak with it. For sure. And like, I feel like I just need to say like, because I know we have some younger spooksters. If you're in high school... And you're dealing with bullshit, just know it's temporary and you're going to move on with your life. And I know hearing that as a teenager, you're like, no bullshit. This is all of it. Legit. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. You can get through it. Just get through it for sure. Oh, for sure. Like, I I get that because like that's how I felt a lot of times. I felt like, God, this is never going to end or mm-hmm. especially like it's like these are the people who are always going to be like in my life right and that and the thing is it's like once you're not forced to see these people every day Mm -hmm. 99% of them will become not a factor oh for sure (laughs) but if not more (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) okay so with that we're gonna go ahead and wrap up thank you guys for listening and we will see you back here next time toodles bye Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.